Uh, today we have the honor, distinct honor, and it's too bad Marissa's downstairs, but I'm very happy to introduce to you Dr. Erwin Mansdorf. Today, Erwin uh, will speak about um, the title of, this, of the talk is The Promotion of Nonviolence as Anti-Semitism, Psychological Warfare Against the Jewish State. Erwin Mansdorf is originally from New York. He's lived in Israel since 1982. Um, he's a major researcher, speaker, and writer on issues related to Israel. Um, he moved with his family from New York in 1982. He's currently a researcher in psych psychological warfare and directs a program on Israel-Arab studies at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, um, an important think tank in Jerusalem headed by former UN ambassador um, for Israel at the, at the United Nations, uh, Dory Gold. Um, and he's an important uh, figure in the Israeli political spectrum and it's an important center. And actually I had the good fortune uh, to meet Erwin briefly about a year ago and he introduced me to Marissa, who's downstairs, uh, who's an intern with us, who's been doing an amazing work for ISGAP. So it was a fortuitous uh, meeting. Um, Erwin is also a former uh, Columbia University professor of medical psychology. He's certified in Israel as an expert, expert supervisor in clinical psychology. He's the founder of Mantan, Crisis Intervention Services, and has had experience in developing systems of intervention that deal with terror and war-related stress. He has conducted several studies on the effect of terror on the civilian populations, has developed, developed treatment programs to deal with terror victims. He continues to serve as a volunteer consultant to the Behavioral Science Division of the IDF. And um, he actually served in Milouim recently, last summer during the war. Um, so doing very, very important work. Um, Dr. Mazdorf also worked with uh, Natan Sharansky to develop responses to Israel's policy position that reflected the consensus in Israeli society. Along with the Jerusalem Project for Democracy in the Middle East, these groups have provided in-depth analysis, uh, analysis of the Arab-Israeli conflict from historical, political, and social perspectives. As a member of the Medical and Public Health Issue Task Force for Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, Dr. Mazdorf is involved in efforts that, c that combat academic bias and misinformation that appears in scientific and research journals. Um, he's a frequent contributor in the media on Israel-related issues and has appeared on CNN's Q&A and several syndicated national radio programs. He has um, editorials featured in the Baltimore Sun, the International Herald Tribune, the Jerusalem Post, Front Page Magazine, and several other Jewish organizations. He's an active researcher and published author, published author and has lectured extensively on American uni university campuses, including Rutgers, Columbia, UPenn, Berkeley, the University of South Florida, the University of Wisconsin, and the University of Texas. Um, and I mentioned earlier, Marissa, thanks to Dr. Mansdorf that we met in, the, in, in Jerusalem, so I'm glad you're here. And it's really an honor and a privilege that you are here to speak with us. Uh, thank you all for coming out in this little chilly night. Appreciate it. Take a look at this picture. You see anything anti-Semitic about it? Yes. You do? Because I've been trained when I see the word justice, I think of students for justice in Palestine. So uh, well, program try to take it at face value. If you look at this at face value. No, I, I mean, yes, because I don't believe it. The Presbyterian Church has put up taken such an anti-Semitic stand lately and Pal I mean Palestinians I you know that's so okay, let me let me rephrase the challenge to you the average New Yorker or the average American looking at this would they see this as anti-Semitic no no that's the question right now you're obviously looking beneath the layers and looking at it at a different nuance level but the average person looking at this, do they see anything anti-Semitic there? And the answer is no. no. 
really isn't. I mean, what could be? You have diversity, you have justice, you have obviously wanting peace. There's nothing really there that comes out on the face of it as, as anti-Semitic. Well, that's where the slippery slope of psychological warfare, which is something that's being practiced very, very heavily, but we don't know it, uh, at least publicly we don't know it, by, um, by the Arab world. Uh, and that's something that nonviolence could be portrayed as. Now, nonviolence, again, is something that's, that's good. Martin Luther King, what could be better than that? How could it be anti-Semitic? Well, let's take a look at a few things and, and look at some of, the, some of the issues that come up. Look at this headline in Aretz by Hanan Ashrawi a few years ago. The boycott, BDS movement, the boycott is our Palestinian nonviolent resistance. Now, again, I want you to focus on the words. Nonviolent, resistance, these are words that don't bring up anti-Semitic anti behavior. They don't normally conjure up anything other than fighting for what's right and decent and dignity and moving people forward. And the language is something that fits within this psychological profile that I'm going to present. And I'll present the challenge with it also, because it's not only simply one way, and we'll, we'll take a look at that. And here's what you get, right? On the one hand, you have this movement presenting itself as nonviolent and doing all the nice good things. And they come out saying, well, anti-Semitism is not the same as being anti-Zionist or anti-Israel. And they accuse people that are looking at this as being exaggerating and, and, and going into hyperbole and saying, well, just because we're saying this and against Zionism or against Israel doesn't mean we're anti-Semitic. And here's a, a little mocking cartoon to that. Same thing over here. Right, break the silence. And by the way, this is not breaking the silence, the group, former soldiers group. This is just a, a epithet that they're throwing out. Break the silence. Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. And again, this is what you'll hear repeated all over and over and over again. Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. It's interesting. I was uh, driving around today listening um, on a number of different news stations in New York, and I'm hearing an advertisement over and over again against... Uh, Bibi Netanyahu coming to New York, and it's being sponsored by Torah True Jews. This is this is the the ultra orthodox anti Zionist movement, and these are definitely people you can't traditionally call anti Semitic, at least not the way they look and, and how they behave, uh, and, but they're virulently anti Zionist. And um, I'm hearing, and I heard this on a number of different stations. So. I guess technically anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, but we all know that today it, it's very hard to distinguish the two in many, many cases, and we have to be very careful to take a look at it. Now, when you look at this, it's difficult not to say that this behavior is anti-Semitic behavior. It's difficult not to say it. However, I would ask you to hold back one second and to think very carefully before we go and say, yes, it is anti-Semitic behavior. It's true that many of the people, or even the majority of the people that would be part of a demonstration like this are likely to be anti-Semitic. They're not likely to be people that have warm place in their heart for Jewish tradition. But we have to be very careful on a technical basis in terms of what we call it. So let's go on and explore this a little bit more and see where we, where we go. Now, I'm not going to go over this in detail, but nonviolence. The type of nonviolence that, that I think falls within the problematic area of psychologically being able to move into the anti-Semitic fold is over here, right? These aren't people that are nonviolent on the basis of principle. And these aren't people that are being nonviolent on the basis because they want to reform something and do good for the world. These are people that want to be nonviolent for a very pragmatic reason and a revolutionary reason. So nonviolence by itself does not mean it's something that doesn't hurt someone else. And that's part of the problem. When we look at nonviolence, you assume it doesn't hurt anyone. What could be bad about nonviolence? Well, revolutionary nonviolence that could be pragmatic can create that problem. I remember as a Palestinian 
um, acquaintance of mine that I had a discussion with, he's very much into nonviolence. And when he started, I, I asked him, when you started nonviolent action, was it out of principle or was it out of some other reason? And he said it was meant in order to instigate the IDF to react. In other words, we our nonviolence was there in order to show how the IDF really is a violent um, reacting force. So they did things in a nonviolent way uh, to create soldiers reacting to them in a more violent way. And of course, that becomes something that, that feeds within uh, the publicity that they're trying to get. Uh, and that's really what I'm talking about, the revolutionary pragmatic nonviolence, and how that could be something that fits into the into model that we're trying to present tonight. Now, people who talk about nonviolent protests, and it's very important to remember this, that it disarms you. When someone comes into you and, and says, I'm nonviolent and I'm only there for human rights, this immediately disarms you. And you don't think this is somebody that's coming with an anti-Semitic uh, protocol that he's going to or she's going to lay out. But what do they really look at? Well, what I'm going to quote over here is from the One Solution Conference that was held uh, not, not too long ago. And this is the declaration. Any system of government must be founded on the principle of equality and civil, political, social, cultural rights for all citizens. Power must be exercised with rigorous impartiality on behalf of all people. Diversity of it. What's wrong with that? How could you argue with that? The creation of a non-sectarian state that does not privilege the rights of one ethnic, well, same thing. How could you argue with this? This is great. Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin. I mean, you go into the average American college student, you say, this is what we want. Implementation of the right of return, right of return. Who could be against somebody going back to their own homes? I mean, that's the way it's presented. But we know what this translates into. And I'll show a little tape in a while of Norman Finkelstein. I don't know how many of you saw the tape where he comes out and says, this really means the end of the state of Israel. Okay, but the language over here is the language of nonviolence, of good things and wonderful things, and that's where the slippery slope comes up. Now, when we talk about psychological warfare, what we now have is a new field of operations against Israel. It's been around for a long time. Psychological warfare has been used in every, historically, from, from the time of, of the Bible, and what that relief is, is a relief of the um, two sons of Jacob, Shimon and Levi, Simeon and Levi, attacking Shechem after the um, violation of their, of their sister. It was a psychological warfare. What they did is they said, okay, just become one of us, circumcise all your males, and everything will be fine, and they did a sneak attack. That's pure psychological warfare. It's one of the first examples of it in the Bible. What you have today is something a little different. It's still warfare, but it's the operationalization of passive-aggressive behavior. Right? It's people saying one thing, but prepared to do something else behind them. Right? And this is where we have to be very careful in terms of researchers to understand the difference between something that's truly nonviolent and something that's really nonviolent for another reason. Okay? Because this smiling guy over here is not a guy I want to stand next to for too long. Neither is the other guy. <laughs> so back to NGOs again. NGOs are organizations that ostensibly are apolitical, but they have policy positions that stake out a very clear political position. And those of you that subscribe to NGO Monitor know what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, many of these groups are perceived as objective and neutral, perceived that way, but their involvement is used to promote certain positions. And playing to these groups, and they advocate a particular position, this is very commonplace. So when people that are active in pro-Israel movements hear about Human Rights Watch, which has a great sounding name, or Amnesty International, which has another great sounding name and, and, and great work, we immediately go on the defensive, right? Because these are NGOs that have been shown to possibly do, to politicize some of the work that they're doing. So what NGOs have done, they basically expect 
expand the market for psychological warfare. Because what they're doing is they're, they're additional actors, they're additional agents, and they put more pressure on international bodies that wasn't there before. So the NGOs now become players in this game of psychological warfare. Okay? Now, what is psychological warfare? This is a technical definition, influencing emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and really doing things in a passive, nonviolent way to try to influence something. What you have, in addition to psychological warfare, something called psychological asymmetry. Now, we all know about asymmetric warfare. Asymmetric warfare is we have one great uh, military giant that's fighting someone that has no military means at all, and that's asymmetric. But what you have with psychological asymmetry is that the weaker actually is the stronger. Right? You think that the person with the tanks are the stronger person. But in the battlefield that we have today, in terms of emotions and beliefs and changing attitudes, it's not this guy that's a strong guy, it's this guy that's the strong guy. And that's what I'll give you a couple of examples of and show how that's used in terms of this, this movement of psychological operations from the battlefield. All the tanks won't do you any good when you have diplomacy that focuses on only one element. So what do we learn from the scientific literature how people look at news and information? What do we know about that? Well, here we have words again. You have the right to self-defense, and you have the human rights of international law. Now, self-defense is a human right, but nobody looks at it that way unless, unless the self-defense is by a victim. Okay? If the self-defense is not by a victim, it's considered a violation of international law. All right, now we'll show a couple of examples of that. Okay, so you have this dilemma. How do you exercise military strength and still maintain a moral high ground? How does that happen? What you have here is a picture of, not in my name, a Jewish voice for peace, for peace. Again, Jewish voice for peace. What could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that? So. You have pictures like that that come out during the war that you see circulated around and around and around in people, by people that are pro-Israel and sent to other people and they look, people on the battlefield praying, it's wonderful and it's great. That cannot compete for one second against this picture. Mm -hmm. Right? doesn't compete for one second. I know you could come and tell me, well, they put them in their human shields and this. You could say that as much as you want. It doesn't work. Okay? Logic doesn't work in terms of this. And what you find is not hard power, but soft power. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with Joseph Nye's terminology of soft power, but what, what he's talking about over there is the ability to use other types of mechanisms besides military mechanisms to win. To win. And what are the mechanisms that are being used today by anti-Semitic people and by anti-Israel people? What are those mechanisms? Well, it's victimhood, nonviolence, and the glorification of resistance. These are all great things. Look, every American child is, grew up with Revolutionary War, George Washington fighting revolution. I mean, these are wonderful terms. How could you be against that? Victimhood, well, how could you be against victims? Jews were perpetual victims. Nonviolence, I mean, Martin Luther King is an icon in this country, deservedly so. So these are the terms that are being used, right? Now, can this be anti, can something good be something very bad? Anti-Semitism is very bad. These things are very good. How do you mix them together? Here's where the dilemma and here's where the conflict comes in and here's where the confusion comes in with people. So, take it one example is lawfare. I'll just give one example. So, it's using a legitimate means for an illegitimate end. Right? In any time that you have something like this going on, again, this is a little bit old. You have a picture of Ayod Barak, Sipi Livni, and Ayod Olmert. And again, look at, look at the, the text. We're following orders. I mean, what does that sound like? Uh, protecting our citizens, defending itself. 
And this is one of the things that, that is moving forward quite quickly right now. Uh, Mustafa Barghouti, right? Dr. Barghouti says it very clearly. Many people understand and realize now that nonviolent resistance is much more effective than military actions. And that's exactly what he does. And by repeating and repeating and playing on this mantra of nonviolence, they put forth a new area of psychological warfare against Israel and against the Jewish people, if I may add also. Here's another Baguti, Omar Baguti. He's the guru of the BDS movement, right? And everything, if you hear him speak, everything he speaks about is Palestinian rights. And when he speaks in the United States, when he speaks in front of other uh, places as well, he speaks about Mandela and King. This is the legacy of Mandela and King and one other person. Obama? Gandhi. No. <laughs> <laughs> he should, he should. And... Uh, you know, these are, these are the, the strategies that are coming out now. Mandela kink. Now, it's gotten so inculcated that this is, in Israel, you'd never find anyone else getting away with this. But here you have a Palestinian in blackface. Okay? There's Gandhi. There's King. Or, I don't know which one is King or which one's Mandela. But this is marching near Bil'in in, um, outside of Jerusalem. One of the weekly Friday demonstrations that um, Palestinians and internationals have against the, the fence, the wall, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and this is a still from a video uh, that was done there not, not too long ago, matching with the Palestinian plan. Again, you know, Gandhi, this is, this is the movement, this is the image that they're trying to present. And again, it's very, very hard to come and take something good and tell people these are bad, this is bad behavior. Because look what they're saying. Look what they're trying to represent. This is what they're trying to put forward. BDS movement for justice and equality. What could be wrong with that? Now, take a few minutes and listen to Norman Finkelstein. I don't know many of you have heard this. When Norman Finkelstein came out and showed BDS for, for what it is. And this is a form. Okay. I have heard my right to speak my mind, and I'm not going to tolerate what I think is silliness, childishness, and a lot of leftist posturing. I mean, we have to be honest. And I loathe the, the disingenuousness. They don't want Israel. They want to, they think of being very clever. They call it their three, you know, three tier. We want the end of the occupation, we want the right of return, and we want equal rights for Arabs in Israel. And they think they're very clever because they know the result of implementing all three is what? What's the result? You know and I know. What's the result? There's no Israel. And if you don't want the fair framework, then stop talking about the law. And stop trying to be so clever. Because you're only clever in your cult. The moment you step out, you have to deal with Israeli propaganda. And here, they have a case. They say, no, they're not really talking about rights. They're talking about they want to destroy Israel. And in fact, I think they're right. I think that's true. I'm not going to lie. But this kind of duplicity and disingenuousness, oh, we're agnostic about Israel. No, you're not agnostic. You don't want it. Then just say it. But they know full well. If you say it, you don't have a prayer reaching a broad public. That's where the public is now. I support the BDS, but I said it will never reach a broad public until and unless they're explicit on their goal. And their goal has to include 
recognition of Israel, or it's a non-starter. It won't reach the public. Because the moment you go out there, Israel will start to say, what about us? And they won't recognize our right. And in fact, that's correct. You can't answer the Israelis on that. Because they're making a statement that's factually correct. It's not an accident, an unwitting omission, that BDS does not mention Israel. You know that and I know that. It's not like they're, oh, we forgot to mention it. They won't mention it because they know it will split the movement. Because there's a large segment of the movement, component of the movement, which wants to eliminate Israel. You talk about BDS, they, always, they make all these claims about their victories. All their claims about their victories. Well, you know what? You see these ten fingers? These movements suffice to count all their victories. There are superfluous fingers here to count all their victories. It's just, it's a cult where the guru says, we have all these victories, and everyone nods their head, and nobody sits down to do the arithmetic on their own. Yes, it's had some victories, no question about it. But the way people promote it, as if it's proven itself and we're on the edge, you know, on the verge of a victory of some sort, it's just sheer nonsense. It's sheer nonsense. It's a cult. And I personally, I'm tired of it. There's no Israel. That's what it's really about. And you think you're fooling anybody? You think you're so clever? that people can't figure that out for themselves? No, they understand the arithmetic perfectly well. Are you going to reach a broad public which is going to hear the Israeli side and want to destroy us? No, you're not. And frankly, you know what? You shouldn't. You shouldn't reach a broad public because you're dishonest. And I wouldn't trust those people if I had to live in state. I wouldn't. It's dishonesty. That's basically what he has to say. He goes on and on. I mean, this is a long tape. He um, goes on for an hour over this, and he had a, a lot of publicity on it. But it's, it's, it's phenomenal how right on he was in terms of everything he was saying. And what's also phenomenal is part of the other promoters of BDS, you know where BDS gets a lot of its publicity from? Just think about it. How many of, who has not heard of BDS? Everyone hears of BDS, right? Yeah. Most people heard of BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions. And you hear about it from Jewish organizations. And you hear about it from Jewish organizations that are warning what's going down the road and how terrible it is and et cetera, et cetera. And it gives the impression that BDS has taken over and, and here's a man who supports BDS. Here's a man who is not a Zionist, who's sympathetic to the movement who puts it out as it is. The amount of victories they had, I can't count on both, on both hands. And that's actually accurate. But the psychological victories that they have and the way that they've gotten a lot of Jewish organizations to react to them is just phenomenally amazing how they do it. When the, uh, back in 2000, 2000, I was in Washington. I was invited to Washington for a series of meetings. And at the time I met somebody who says, who tells me, Psychological warfare is going to be the next thing by the Arab nations. There are large funders from Arab countries who are funding Palestinian propaganda in a way to create a psychological warfare mechanism that will influence the public. And unlike, this, this is the line that really struck me, unlike people that are Jewish and pro-Israel, they don't want their names in light. They don't want to be publicized. They don't want anyone to say, this person donated so much to this organization. They want this to be a secret, and they want it to be effective. But in the people that you're working for, you can't get anyone to donate anything unless their name goes up in lights. And who wants to go and donate money uh, for something where their names don't go up in lights? Well, they're doing it the right way. Now, I want you to listen to another tape. 
And here's the other barguti. And we listen just to a couple of minutes at the beginning. I want you to look for the terminology that he uses. And again, this is the terminology that's designed to attract a certain type of person. And um, you'll hear it when we go into it. of the language. What did he say here? Human rights. Military assault. This is all directly from what they came at. That's what, how she started, how she introduced uh, Barghouti was human rights right away, military assault, and then he uses the terms massacre, brutal siege, open-air prison, brothers and sisters, resistance, Defending rights. This was in less than two minutes. Came out with all the right words. And he'll say this over and over again whenever you hear him. And he, you go on, you can hear more of this. She comes back, aggression. Okay? The juxtaposition of this goes back to this idea of victimhood as being a great thing. Great thing to fall into. And how could a victim be an anti-Semite? How could that happen? So apartheid, colonialist, settlerism, etc. all these terminologies are all part of this. And it becomes another example of psychological asymmetry to where the ostensibly weaker person is, ex is essentially stronger because that person has psychological tools that the other person does not have. So they'll say, well, we're victims. You know, you have tanks, we have nothing. But you have the psychological benefit of being a victim and you're using it this way. So I wrote an article on this with Kay Dar, who was here last night. Some of you may have been here uh, on this a number of, of years ago on the, on the Islamist aspect of, of the psychological asymmetry of, of is, Islamist warfare. And I, I want to go over this very 
you know, just quickly, you know, here's a, a still from CNN showing all the tanks and aircraft and active soldiers against just 12,500 troops of the Palestinians in Gaza. And you say, well, overwhelming, overwhelming superiority. So here's where the underdog has certain advantages. They could use guerrilla tactics. We'll give the benefit of using the term guerrilla. Unconventional warfare blends in with civilians and lack of accountability. Because whatever they want to do, regardless of international law, you can get away with it. So it's a psychological reversal of who's strong and who's weak and who's able to really utilize certain things. So all the tanks and all the aircraft and everything really doesn't work when you have a sophisticated operation of victimhood working. And that's what you have. So victimhood is really the new, the new weapon. And there are people that are writing about don't blame the victim because it's almost a holy grail in, in certainly in American culture to say you're going to blame the victim for something. You blame the victim, you're a bad guy, you're merciful, you don't have any mercy, you're, you have no heart, you're tough, you're not the type of guy I want to do business with, I don't want to have you have using it, you're blaming the victim. But the truth is sometimes the victim is to blame. Now, how do you say that and how do you do that? Well, that's something that we haven't invested any thought into that. But we really should and we really should think about it because that's really what, what we're looking at. So the victim's stance is always powerful. The victim is always morally right, neither responsible nor accountable, for, forever entitled to sympathy. If you have a legal argument and you have a moral argument, which one is going to win? And that's what happens. So you could have all these spokespeople getting on television and saying legally and international law and we for this and this and that and giving all these reasons. But if you fall within the trap, and they often do, of blaming the victim, you're going to lose. And that's a very key aspect of psychological warfare. So you have this perception of disproportionate suffering, sort of what you were talking about just now. You have, uh, and again, this is somebody mocking it. You have a, uh, a rocket that's falling on the left side in Israel, and you see that happening, and you have that happening on the Palestinian side. This is an effect, this is what happened. I mean, this may be an exaggeration, but take it from me. I was in the middle of this. This is what happened, and I deal with psychological issues all the time. You cannot compare the psychological trauma of Israelis, which is serious and significant. You just can't compare it to what's happening in, in Gaza. Now, that doesn't mean, this is not a basketball game, that you have a score on one side and a score on the other side. Uh, there is a reason that the victim is the victim there, but we haven't been able to really explain that in, the, in, a, in, a, in an appropriate fashion. So you have things like this that come out and make the impression, and again, maybe not on you, but on the average person that takes a look at this, this does make an impression. But you do have people that say the other things as well, okay? So it's not always a one-sided street. This is a great tweet in, in, ter in terms of uh, how this person responded to the fact, well, look, you know, you have it. But it goes to show the thinking of the people that glorify victimization. The, those are the types of people that say, well, you know, you're defending yourself, you're able to defend yourself, so therefore you're wrong. Right? That's the psychological leap that they have, and, and this is the response that was given by this person. So the, the asymmetry between Israel and, and, the, other, and the Islamists is, is quite stark. On the one side, you have, you're confined to a court system, treating POWs, international accountability, a moral code. On the other side, you have, especially with Islamists, you have Sharia, there's no POW status, there's no accountability of jihadist philosophy. It's the exploitation of victimhood and that's bought hook, line, and sinker by people that have a certain ideology. Example number one, Kana in 1996. This is where there was an attack and there was a mistake, there was an error, and there was a lot of people that were killed in Lebanon. First Lebanese war. Next war, and it resulted in a ceasefire and everything. The, 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 object, the military objectives could not be reached because of this 
very good use of psychological warfare. The military objections were not reached. So with all the planes and all the tanks and everything, the war could not be won, was not able to be won militarily because of the use of this. Ten years later, you had the same thing all over again. Misfire into Kana, and the same sort of pictures that are coming out, and the same sort of result. Three, four, and five. We'll probably be able to put six, seven, eight in there. The Gaza Wars, same sort of thing. The Goldstone Commission and the results that came in there. Shabbas, who's, now we have a new commission, but it's the same sort of thing. When this happens, put a commission up, find out what's going on, and now we have the newest thing, the Palestinian ICC bid into the International Criminal Court. That's the next line of offense. And number six, settlement building. Right? There is no way that you could explain to any objective American, nobody buys any of the arguments for settlements. Nobody buys it. Now, you could explain it away from here till tomorrow. To date, there's not been a sufficient explanation that works on people that value Mandela, King, and Gandhi. It just doesn't work. Right? Nobody buys it. Even people that are sympathetic to Israel and people that are not anti-Semites, right? And that's why when Palestinians are going to tackle settlement building, they're going to have a very, very sympathetic ear from the world. Not necessarily from the court, where there's arguments, but people, as the publicity goes out, people look at this as unfair, right? The case has not been built up as something fair. According to the report, the reason Palestinians are adapting this approach is that while the investigation they asked the court to carry out regarding the events in Gaza will open them up to counterclaims of being responsible for war crimes, they feel that settlement issue is a one-way street, and they're right. And they're right. And their data, I'm sure they're doing research, and their data is being gathered, and they see this is what people feel, and they're correct in that. So, is this anti-Semitism? What do you say? Is it? Or is it not? Well. Who are the nonviolent anti-Israel activists? Stop and take a look who these people are, right? Who's an anti-Semite today? If you had to look at it and say, what type of person are anti-Semites? Well, we think historically, we think Nazis. We think extreme Muslims. How about these people? We must stand against violence in all forms. What's wrong with that? This war is a one-sided conflict between a military which is one of the largest and best equipped in the world, the IDF, who enjoy widespread support from the U.S. and a people whose lands have been steadily dwindling for decades. Civilian casualties in Gaza, a tiny strip of land that is densely populated, has been under blockade for some time. No one can leave, there's nowhere to hide. Far outweigh those in Israel with advanced missile defense system. As a result, despair and desire for revenge are on the rise. Politicians on all sides seek to exploit this. Is this anti-Semitic by itself? And see where this comes from. Occupy movement. These are the people that are in the forefront. And these are the people that are aligning themselves today with what you see. So Occupy Wall Street, not Palestine. You'll see this all over the place now. The Occupy movement is something that contains a lot of people that these mantras are part of their a part of their daily life. That's one. Two, take a look at what happened in Ferguson. Right? You have Basim Masri, right? a Palestinian activist. Uh, there's plenty of tapes. Just YouTube him. You'll hear it. He was right in the forefront. Palestinians support Ferguson. Like that. This is, are they anti-Semites? I would tend to think there's probably a good chance that they probably are. I think it's not unreasonable to say that. And here's taking advantage of Ferguson. Palestinian people know what it means to be shot while unarmed because of your ethnicity. Take advantage psychologically, use psychological warfare of something that's getting to get a push in the media. That's out there, jump on it. Hashtag Ferguson, hashtag justice, Palestinian. Now, this was in New York City after the Garner incident, the marches uh, against the police. And this is one sign that came out there. Israel trains the NYPD. Well, that's true. But that's 
not the point. So is all this anti-Semitism or not? Well, and here's where the challenge is. Israel and capitalism are humanity's number one enemies. So look at the people that are promoting this type of anti-Israel behavior. And what do they have in common? What are they? Are they mainstream? No. Do you see mainstream doing it? Is it anti-Semitism? Yes. Is it anti-Semitism that we have to be concerned about? Mm -hmm. Right? And let's look at the duck test. As any attorney will tell you, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So, there's the idea of legitimate versus illegitimate criticism, intention versus effect. Is anti-Israel equal anti-Semitism? Technically not. On a practical basis, the people that are in the forefront of anti-Israel, many of them are in fact anti-Semites. Not all, but many are. And here you have Judith Butler writing, no, it's not anti-Semitic. And what is she responding? She's responding to Larry Summers saying, serious and thoughtful people, this got a lot of publicity at the time, are advocating and taking actions that are anti-Semitic in their effect, if not in their intent. In other words, you may not be an anti-Semite. You may not think you're an anti-Semite, but what you're doing are things that are resulting in anti-Semitic behavior, effect. And she's writing why it's not, intellectualizing it, of course, mm -hmm. why it's not. So, back to the duck. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you think it's a duck, but not always. And you see, sometimes it's not a duck. And that's what we have to be careful about, and that gets to the excellent point that you raised before. We think it is because we're conditioned to it. We look at it that way, we're conditioned to it, we, we see this, this is what we think is going on. But I'll ask the question again. If it's in the Occupy movement, and if it's in the anti-globalization movement, and if it's in the people that are running around Ferguson, is this mainstream USA? Or is this a part of the USA that does not represent? What do you think? Even if it's marginal. Oh, you're the people that live here. So you could say, well, you know, let's take a look at it this way. We don't want it to get out of hand, and if you have something now, you better treat it, otherwise, who knows what it's going to turn into. Do you go to the emergency room for a cold? No. When you cut your finger, what do you do? That's about it. You don't go to the doctor. The reactions have to be equal to what's there. Otherwise, the problem that we think we're protesting, we could create even a bigger problem, give it even more publicity, and get it even places where it's not. And that's what we have to be careful of. So, of course, you could take the attitude where there's smoke, there's fire. But from a scientific point of view, where there's smoke, there's smoke. Right? So let's take a look at, at something. Not all nonviolence is really nonviolent, we know. Again, use the world peace, Israel must be destroyed. You know, great, you know, peaceful person. And that's, again, part of, part of the psychology. But the dilemma that we're reaching and, and the dilemma that I'm putting out in front of you and the challenge that I'm putting out in front of you to, to think a little differently is you have that on the, on the right side. Break the science. Anti-Zionism anti is not anti-Semitism. And just because um, I, I don't want to be stifled from speaking, uh, being accused of being an anti-Semite. But then again, here we have UNESCO that actually dismissed reports that Palestinian post this was a, not too long ago, post-collection Nick's duty, anti-Semitism. So this is out there. The nomination has not been rejected. The nominator is requested to revise it. So th there is something there. But I want you to look at these two cartoons because I think this puts the dilemma into where I'd like, I'd like you to take a look at it. Halt, who are you? The last Palestinian Earth, who are you? Oh, I'm the last Israeli Earth, so shoot me. No, 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 we should just shake hands and end the stupidity. Okay, boom. Is this an anti-Semitic cartoon? 
What would you say it is? I would say this is a very pro-Semitic, pro-Israel cartoon. It shows what a lot of people think in terms of the duplicity of Islamists, the duplicity of some of the Palestinians. They say one thing and they do another thing. This is very sympathetic to Israel, correct? Well, it, it, but, but if you, the Arab, uh, the little Arab says, uh, so shoot me. So in a way, it's like saying, I understand, but you know, we're there to build a state. We're not there to kill them. Right, but still, the context, this whole cartoon, is this done by an anti-Semite? You think this is an anti-Semitic cartoon? The Palestinians wearing a belt? Is that what's going on? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that this is not an anti-Semitic cartoon. This is something that's very, something that, that gets across a notion that a lot of Israelis would like to get across to people. This is something sympathetic. Let's take a look at this cartoon. Okay, well. How about this one? Is this an anti-Semitic cartoon? Headless Nazi marcher wow. holding with the Palestinian, by the way, showing the march of, of, of the Jews and pushing the Palestinian refugees the away. Like I think it's pretty clear that this can be an anti Semitic cartoon, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the dilemma. So, is this guy an anti Semite? Well, same, same guy that did this did this. And that's where the dilemma comes in. For anybody that's studying anti-Semitism, which is a real and true and, and honest issue that we really need to get at, but you have to be very careful to differentiate what it is. Is it classical anti-Semitism? Is it a new form of anti-Semitism? Is it something that we still don't know yet? And I'm not so sure what the, the attitude as far as nonviolence is concerned, where that fits in. It's certainly true that many of the people that are involved in this new psychological warfare with Gandhi and, and Mandela and the nonviolence and all the words that you heard uh, Barghouti speak about, these are anti-Semites. However, not everyone is. And it's important that in terms of combating this and studying it and doing a scholarly research in it, we have to be accurate in terms of where, where we're going. And by being accurate, we then could forge a path in, term, in terms of really dealing with it in, in, in a way that becomes effective. Be happy to take questions. Well, is that... <laughs>